Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel 24. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 tonight. It says, In the ninth year and the tenth month, and on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Set on the pot, set it on. Pour in water also, put in the pieces of meat and the, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well. Seethe also its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it and whose corrosion has, has, has not gone out of it. Take out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. She has put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust, to rouse my wrath, to take vengeance. I have set the, on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals, that it may become hot, and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in its corrosion and consumed, and its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it into the fire with its corrosion. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. Now, in this whole study of Ezekiel, we have been looking at the coming judgment of Jerusalem and Judah. Well... It's now here. We've had lots of warnings. We've had lots of prophecies. We've had lots of opportunities that God has been given for Jerusalem to turn around, for the people of Judah to repent. But at this point in our study of Ezekiel, chapter 24 of Ezekiel, is now when the judgment actually happens. And you see in verse 1, it says, In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Now, if you remember, we're not going to go back there, but if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, all the dates and times are tied back to the year 597 when he was taken captive. And so if you're one of those people that wants to know, well, what day was that? When did that actually, the siege of Jerusalem actually begin, the final siege? It was on January 15th, 588 B.C. All right, January 15th, 588 B.C., is when the final siege of Jerusalem began. Now, the siege was going to last 18 months, and it's going to culminate in 586 B.C., but the long-prophesied judgment on Oholibah's sin had begun. All right, so what I'm going to do real quick is take you to Jeremiah, two places, just to kind of read a little bit about what's happening in the siege. Go to Jeremiah chapter 39. We're going to just look at two verses, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 39, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the breach was made in the city. So there you see it started in 588, went on for 18 months. During the, it started in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign. In the eleventh year of his reign, the breach was made in the city. Go to Jeremiah chapter 52. Look at verses 1 through 11. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to point, the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, and in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. 
and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. All right. Everything that we've been looking at all through the study of Ezekiel and the warnings of the coming judgment on Jerusalem all finally did come to pass, did they not? So what I want to do real quick is take you back on a refresher course. I mean, it's been a while. How long, how long have we been studying Ezekiel? Be careful how you answer that because some of you might say some mean things. But, but it's been a while, hasn't it? Some of this stuff you might not even remember. So do you remember some of the prophecies in the word pictures that Ezekiel was given to foretell this coming day? Go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 4 and let me remind you of a few. In Ezekiel chapter 4, we saw that he, he was told to take a brick and to build siege works all around the brick. Look at verses 1 through 3. God says, You son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a stage of siege and press the siege against, against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So remember, he was told to take a brick, write Jerusalem on it, and then he was to take dirt and build siege works all around it. By the way, what happened to the city? Were siege works built around the city? We read about it tonight. Also, Ezekiel was told to lie on his side with his back toward the city. In other words, his back is to the city. He's not going to be there for the city. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 4, look at verses 4 through 8. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years that their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assigned you a day for each year. All right, now... We also saw, if you remember, he was told to make Ezekiel bread. Remember the, the study of Ezekiel bread? Because the famine was going to be such that he was to, they were to make bread out of things that you really don't usually make bread out of. Go to chapter 4, look at verses 9 through 17. And he says, And you take wheat and barley and beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it, and your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, and the sixth part of a hen from day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat it as barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. Remember that? And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread and unclean among the nations where I will drive them. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up until now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has, it taint, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. By the way, keep that in mind. Something later is going to come up that's going to be kind of interesting when he said he's never eaten anything torn by beasts or died by itself. So then he said to me, See, I assigned to you a cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. Or moreover, I'm going to break the supply of bread. We read it earlier tonight. What happened by the end of the 18-month siege of Jerusalem? There was a famine in the city so much that there was no bread. They could, there was nothing to eat. Ezekiel also was told, if you remember, again, it's been a while. Ezekiel was told to cut his hair. He's to shave all his hair off and section the hair into three segments. He was to take one third and burn it. He was to take another third and take a sword and cut it up with a sword. And the other third, he was to scatter it to the wind. But while it was in the air, he was to take a sword and cut some of it. But he was also to take a remnant of the one third, keeping it safe. Go to Ezekiel chapter 5 and look at verses 1 through 4. Ezekiel chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. A third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind and I'll unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. And from there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. 
Now, I share this with you. I could go on. If you remember, these are all pictures that God had over the years prior to the judgment of Jerusalem. God had been telling Ezekiel to do these things. Take the brick, build siege works around it. Lay on your side with your back to the city. Make this bread out of stuff that you don't normally make bread out of because you're not going to have any food. He'll go ahead and cut his hair all off and destroy most of it by burning it and cutting it and scattering it to the wind. These were all pictures, prophetic pictures, of what God was going to do to Jerusalem. And I ask again, did it all come true? Now, I say this for a reason. The same is true of the coming world judgment, folks. As we look at the prophecies of what's going to happen in the last days and how God is going to judge every nation, how God's not only going to judge just the city of Babylon and the nation of Babylon, but also all the nations of the earth are going to go through a judgment. Everything that God has been saying for all these years is going to happen to each one of those nations, including us. If God said it, it's going to happen. So now in our study for today, back in chapter 24, Ezekiel's given another word picture in these verses as the siege of Jerusalem begins. Now, you're about to see, this is a very interesting thing that God has him do. He's told to take an old rusty, corroded pot, and he's to cook meat and bones in it with water. Now, the pot is Jerusalem, and the meat and the bones are the people of the city. Look at verses 6 through 8, though. In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 24, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst, and she put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust, to rouse my wrath to take vengeance. I have set on the bare rock the, the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. So he's told, as you're cooking this meat in this pot, this rusty old pot, I want you to all of a sudden just start taking the pieces out and putting them out on the ground. Even the blood from this piece, these pieces of meat, don't cover it up. Just let the blood sit there on the rock and on the ground. Now, to most of us, we would read that and say, okay, but what's the point? Again, I cannot stress this enough. If I can be used of God in any way to encourage you to read the whole Bible you would find that most everything that's here is tied to something else because everything we need has been given to us by God. But when he says, just put it on the bare rock, let the blood just go on the ground and don't cover it up, it's tied to something else. It's actually tied to something we read earlier in our study as well when we looked at something a little bit earlier this, this evening. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17, because when God tells him, take the pieces and just the bloody pieces of meat and just throw them on the, on the ground and don't cover it up with dirt, this is a big deal. Leviticus chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 10. In the law of Moses, in the book of Leviticus, we see if any one of the, of the house of Israel or of the sojourn or strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And also anyone of the, also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats shall be cut off, and every person who eats what dies of itself or what's torn by beasts, whether he's a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, and then he shall be unclean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So here in the law of Moses is God's telling them that they're not to eat blood. He tells us that they're not to eat blood for a couple of reasons. One, the life is in the blood. And on top of that, God has given the blood as an atonement covering for their souls. 
Now, we're going to get into that in a little bit because this is going to be a fun study for tonight. But what I want you to hear for right now, though, was in the law, he said if they were to kill an animal to, to cook it, they were to take the blood and pour it out on the ground. But what were they to do with the blood if they poured it out on the ground? Cover it with dirt. They were to treat it as special. Don't just let it lay there. It's special. There's two main reasons from this passage why the blood is special. One is the life is in, it, in the blood, and God has given the blood as what? An atonement for, to covering for, for sin and for our souls. Again, more on that in a little bit. Back in Ezekiel 24, we're not going to turn there. Ezekiel's told, take these bloody pieces of meat that are in the pot in the midst of cooking and just throw them out on the ground and don't cover their blood. Don't treat them as special. There will be no atonement. There will be no covering. Now, because of the fact that this is what's tied to where we were, this wonderful passage in Leviticus, I had to, as I prayed over tonight's lesson, I had to think and say, is there any way I can even just touch on the life is in the blood and then move on back to Ezekiel? And folks, I can't. I can't. I've told you before, I don't like to chase rabbits when I'm doing a Bible study. I like to stay focused and stay where we're at. But I do chase a rabbit when there are two requirements that are met. One, you can catch it. And two, it tastes good when you catch it. But what we're going to do is we're going to chase a rabbit tonight and deal with this passage in Leviticus and others. I want to talk to you tonight about progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is when God gives us a little bit of a picture and reveals some truth, but then later on gives us some more information, and then a little bit more gives us some more information and for more information. And all through the scriptures, God has been giving progressive revelation. That's why you need to understand and have read and studied Genesis to Revelation to get an understanding of what God's word says. There's a danger out there. I was one of those guys as well. There's nothing horribly wrong with a preacher being a young guy when he starts preaching. But the Bible also talks about them not being recent converts. The Bible also talks about them being well studied. And sometimes when we're young, we're zealous. We got all excited about a passage of scripture and we preach things from a passage of scripture, but we haven't read the rest of it. And that's where a lot of bad doctrine comes from. And tonight I want to walk you through just briefly a teaching on blood and how progressive revelation opens up the gospel in a way that is so, so exciting. You see, progressive revelation, like I said, is, is that God will give a picture at a certain point in history, but he doesn't give all the information. Then, then a little later, he'll give a little bit more information. And a little bit later, he'll give a little bit more. And as it is progressively revealed, the big picture comes clear, and what God is looking for and what God is trying to show becomes very clear. I'm going to ask you a question. And for those of you that were admitted in motion today, you can't answer. Is this the first time that God talks about the life being in the blood? No. Go with me to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, because this is where man's allowed to eat animals now. If you didn't know this, before the flood, man, man just like the animals, only ate vegetables and grass. But it's after the flood that we're allowed to eat meat. I like that. In chapter 9 of Genesis, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground. And all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man... From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here he says, when you eat animals now, you're allowed to eat animals. Don't eat the blood when you eat the animals. Why? According to this, because its life is in the blood. That's all we know so far right now. From progressive revelation, he's given us a little bit. Life is in the blood. Now, let, let me tell you, hopefully we're far enough along now in our understanding of how things work in our human bodies, but you drain the blood out of somebody, guess what? They're in trouble. The life is in the blood. Part of the reason why I don't feel too good 
is the cancer treatments that I'm going through, the chemo, are being pumped into my bloodstream to kill the cancer, but it's also affecting my blood. Before I can even have my next chemo treatment, I have to have my blood tested to make sure my levels are at a certain point. And let me just tell you, I don't feel good. I, I wish I could tell you I had life in my blood. My human blood doesn't feel lively right now. It doesn't feel good at all. And, but God had designed that life is in the blood. That much he's revealed to us. We then, in chapter 17 of Leviticus, get further revelation. We get now know that life's not only in the blood, but God has given the blood as an atonement covering for sin. Remember that? But there was something that he revealed in progressive revelation between Genesis 9 and Leviticus chapter 17 that some of you may not have remembered. Go to Exodus chapter 12. You see, the, the, the book of Leviticus, the law was given in the wilderness. What we're about to read about in Exodus chapter 12 happened while they were still slaves in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first of the month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each, can each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of, it, of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts in, on, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They, will, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted it's with its head, its legs, and its inner parts, and you shall not let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn." In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall, eat in, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And as you remember, this is where the Passover meal was instituted. But now we got a further progressive revelation. We had already seen in Genesis 9 that life is in the blood. But now we see in Exodus 12, we haven't even gotten to Leviticus 17 yet. God hasn't revealed that yet. But in Exodus 12, he has them take this lamb and he have them kill it, the spotless lamb, and they're to kill it and take the blood of that lamb and apply it on the side door frames and the top post of the door of their houses. And that night, when the death angel passes over, wherever the blood has been applied, they will be spared. He's again giving a picture of the importance of the blood covering for sin. Now, I can't, for the sake of time, walk you through every little piece of progressive revelation because that will take too, too much time. So I'll jump ahead a little bit. You do know, though, in John chapter 1, verse 29, that John the Baptist points to Jesus and says what? That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, this picture being revealed little by little, but there's more to it than that. So we then find in progressive revelation that the life is in the blood, and God has given the blood as an atonement covering for sin. And as you know, the Jews were given all these ceremonial laws and the things they were to do with sacrificing different bulls and goats and different animals. And if they didn't have enough money for this, it could be turtle doves. And so they were doing the sacrificial system over and over for a long time as an atonement, a covering for their sins. Correct? Well, in time, though, we get more information. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 18. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, 
The law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consequences of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Oh, progressive revelation. More information now. Even though the blood was given as an atonement to cover their sins, can those bulls and goats' blood take away sin? Not according to the scripture. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he, Jesus, had said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will or that testament, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Don't miss that, folks. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So here the Hebrew writer says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And plus, if those sacrifices that were being offered over and over were able to actually take away sin, they would have ceased to be offered because the sins would have been removed. But they were just a reminder of the sin. But what happened when Jesus came? He came and through one sacrifice by his own blood. Oh, and by the way, is there life in his blood? And is it spotless blood? Is it sinless blood? Through the one whom you put your faith in, through his sacrifice, you can be made clean by one offering of Jesus himself. He did away with what was old, and he, and he established the new covenant, if you will, through one sacrifice for sin. Now, folks, I need to talk about a couple of things that are a little bit touchy in some people's circles, but we have to go there because I have to teach you the scriptures. But before I do that, let me just encourage you with some great verses from the Bible but I want you to help me. For the sake of time, I'm going to have you read good and loud so the microphone will pick you up for the people that are listening to the recording. I want some of you to read a passage of scripture. I'm going to call them out, and I want you to be ready. But as long as you're ready to read good and loud, I need someone to take Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Who wants Romans 5, 9? Nicole, you got it. No, Romans 5, 9. Someone else, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. All right, Jim, you got it? You're going to be in the back of the room, so you're going to be good and loud? Someone else, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Charlie, thank you. You got that one? I saw your hand, Jeff. You got 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. 1 John 1, 7. Someone else, read for us Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Revelation chapter 1, Becky, you got that one. All right. Now listen closely to what's being said in all of these verses. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, you have been justified how? Simply by his blood. How many times was Jesus' blood needing to be offered? Once. Not over and over and over. Just once. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood. Praise the Lord for that. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you catch that? God was pleased to have all his deity live in Jesus 
and through him, and through his blood, don't miss this, it's a tricky one for some people, to make peace for everyone. Don't miss this. I'm not saying everybody's going to heaven. But the Bible's very clear that at the death of Jesus, Jesus' death, once for all, covered the sin of all people. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says this very clearly, that Jesus died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. Jesus' blood was shed once for all. And at that moment, God was pleased to reconcile everything through the blood of his son. You still have to receive that offer of forgiveness, but it has already been paid for by God through Jesus Christ himself for the sins of the world. Isn't that a wonderful thing? 1 John 1, 7, Jeff. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now you understand how Greek works a little bit. That cleanses is a continual process, isn't it? I don't have to have him cleanse me again. Because I have already been made clean once for all. I have been brought near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been made righteous once for, because of Jesus' blood. I am holy. His blood, well, as Andre Crouch used to sing it, his blood will never lose its power. It continues to cleanse us daily, the blood of Jesus. If you're in Christ, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's washed us by his what? Folks, if you understand progressive revelation, God began to show life is in the blood. But not only is life in the blood, the atonement for sin is in the blood. But the blood of bulls and goats isn't going to take away your sin. There's only one blood that can take away your sin. And when you're covered by faith with that blood, that spotless lamb, that lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, you have been made righteous once for all because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to go somewhere in a second here. But let me also talk to the older generation here tonight. I have in my travels talked to many people of the older generation who have been taught that Jesus died for their sins and they need to live a good life. I've asked too many people who are getting close to seeing Jesus face to face, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And their answer is usually yes. And I say, that's great. How do you know? And their answer most often is because I believe in Jesus and I've lived a good life. Folks, let me just tell you, you are only saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and that's all. But now we got to chase this rabbit a little bit further because Jesus made some interesting statements in John chapter 6. I want you to go there. And John chapter 6, when Jesus made these statements, it, it was so offensive to the disciples that were following him. Many of his disciples stopped following him because of what he says here. So stick with me. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. I have said that to, sorry, said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You remember Jesus in John chapter 3 talking to Nicodemus, referring back to when the serpent was made in the wilderness, and the nation of Israel was sinning, God had sent the snakes to bite them, and they were dying, and God told Moses to take a, make a serpent out of bronze, and to put it up on a pole, and to hold it up, and whoever looked to the snake that was on the pole would be spared. 
In John chapter 3, Jesus himself said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and whoever looks to him will be saved. Go to verse 41. So they, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is real, true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So now Jesus says not only that he's the bread of life that came down from heaven, he then goes on and says, this bread that I offer is my flesh. And then he goes on, goes even crazier to many people's minds and says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And upon hearing this, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? It's kind of gross, kind of sick. And they went away. So we've got to, again, put this all together here using progressive revelation and some other things that I'm going to point out to you real quick. We've got to put together an understanding here because, unfortunately, there are people today that still think they have to drink the actual blood of Jesus and eat the actual flesh of Jesus. But I want to remind you that when Jesus was in the upper room and they were having the Passover meal, remember back in Exodus 12? That was the meal they would eat at that time at all times as a memorial forever and a statute to keep forever. He passed around bread, and he passed around a cup of, of, of juice or wine, and he said, this is my body. This is my blood. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus, standing there amongst them, said, this is my body and this is my blood, and they drank from that cup and ate from that bread, had Jesus' body been broken yet? Has his blood been shed yet? No, but he was showing them that this was a symbolic meal that they were eating, representing his body and representing his blood. We are saved by our faith in what he has done, not in any action that we take. And don't forget what has been said in Genesis 9, and don't forget what has been said in in Leviticus 17. Do not drink blood. It was pretty clear, wasn't it? Do not drink blood. Well, why does Jesus say drink his blood and eat his flesh? He's talking about the symbolicness of his body and his blood being shed. And remember, the scripture says that he has already offered that sacrifice once for all. Otherwise, it's not effective. It has to be keep being offered. And unfortunately, some people are taught that they have to, on a weekly basis, or sometimes more than that, Drink some more and take some more. It's been offered. How often? Once for all. We take it by believing in Jesus Christ. Our church just last two weeks ago took the Lord's Supper together and we ate a piece of bread and we drank from the cup. But it wasn't actual blood and it wasn't Jesus' actual body because even in this Lord's Supper, it wasn't his actual blood and his actual body. He was standing there whole when it happened. But as you use progressive revelation in the scriptures showing us the importance of blood, All along, God has been giving us this picture that has been growing and growing and growing. And folks, I can tell you, even though my physical blood is a mess because of chemo, I am fine spiritually because the blood of Jesus, which has covered my sins, is still perfect. It's still pure. And 
I drank of it in 1973 when I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I looked to him. I applied the blood of Jesus Christ to the doorpost of my heart, if you will, by faith. They didn't have to drink the actual blood. Nowhere were they told to do that. They were to do it as a remembrance, as a reminder. It was a picture of what has already been done. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad we had to chase that? Go ahead, Jim. Uh, can I read? Uh, no. All right, go ahead. John 6, 63, which is the answer. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. You got it. You got it. It's all through faith. Not because you actually drank something that became his blood or became his body. So, folks, be set free tonight. The Bible's been really clear all along. Don't drink blood. But you do drink of Jesus' blood and eat of his flesh when you, by faith, believe, as Jim has just pointed out. It's the Spirit that gives us life, not anything physically we do. All right? Go back to Ezekiel chapter 24. In verses 9 through 14... Ezekiel is told to put, is take the burn, and take and burn that copper pot on hot coals to destroy it. Remember, he's been told to take this corrosive pot, this rusty old pot, fill it with water and bones and pieces of the meat. But he didn't let it finish cooking. He's taken it out while it's in the fire, and he's just thrown it out on the ground, and the blood wasn't even covered, and it was just destroyed. Look at verses 9 and following. In, in Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 9, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I also will make the pile great, heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals. This is the pot. Set it empty upon the coals that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted and its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it. Into the fire with its corrosion on account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more, till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. Here he's just said, now you're just going to burn the pot too, because the pot's the city of Jerusalem, and you're just going to destroy it. And I won't relent. But I don't know how many of you caught what he said in verse 13. He says, I would have cleansed you. Do you see it? Look at verse 13. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you. I would have. Even as the day of judgment has come, he keeps saying, I wanted to. I would have. And it reminded me of Jesus in Matthew 23. Go to Matthew 23 and look at what Jesus says to the city of Jerusalem. Remember, he himself came again to that same city. He himself did the miracles in their midst. He fulfilled many prophecies in their midst. And in Matthew 23, starting in verse 37, look at what Jesus says. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I wanted to. I would have. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, by the way, that's not referring to the triumphal entry. Because the triumphal entry had already happened prior to this. So when are they going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? When he comes back at the beginning of the millennial reign. When he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. Jesus is coming back to this earth. There's always an offer of mercy and grace until the last second. Go to Matthew 27. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew 27, look at verses 32 through 44. I just don't know the timing of God's plan, but I know I sense that the judgment for the nations is coming soon, soon, soon. And I just feel like I need to just share this with you. God wants to give mercy right up to the last second. Matthew 27, look at verses 32 through 44. 
As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watched over him there. And over his head, they put the char this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And don't miss verse 44. And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Both robbers made fun of him. Both robbers mocked him. Jump over to Luke 23. See, for years, we've always thought there was a good thief and a bad thief. Let the scripture speak, folks. They both were making fun of Jesus. You're about to see it. You're about to see it change. You're right. Luke 23, 32 through 43. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, let me just give you a little insight that you might not understand in the Greek. As you read this in the Greek, it actually reads as if Jesus was saying that over and over and over loudly, but also under his breath for a repeated amount of time. How it's written in the Greek and how it's put. Most likely the whole time they were nailing him to the cross as he was laying there, it wasn't some big, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, which is how we always read it. But in the Greek, it actually is a continual repetition type of a thing. John MacArthur, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Erwin Lutzer in his book, Christ from the Cross, brings this out really, really well. And the chances are that the whole time that he was being crucified as they were nailing him on the ground and standing him up in the, in the, into the hole, he was saying this over and over, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know. He was continually praying for their forgiveness. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals who were hanged, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Anybody see it? There was no good thief and a bad thief. They were both bad thieves. And Matthew shows us they both made fun of him. But something happened in the heart of one of them during that time. And I can almost guarantee you it was the words of Jesus and the prayer of Jesus as he kept muttering and, and praying under his breath and, and out loud. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as he was pleading to the father on their behalf. Well, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. We read that tonight, didn't we? In John chapter six, verse 45, whoever hears and listens, comes to him. And that thief on the cross changed his mind. He had been mocking him. He had been making fun of him just like everybody else. But he changed his mind at the last second. And he realized his sin. He turned to the other guy and says, don't you fear God? We're getting what we deserve. He understood his sin. And by faith alone, he turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus said, that's all it takes. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Was he baptized? Did he take the Lord's Supper? Did he get down off the cross and help an old lady across the street to do a good deed? It was by faith alone. 
And God gives mercy to the last second. To the last second. Folks, time is running short. If there are family members and friends that you know need Jesus, pray for God to send people in their path. Don't assume it has to be you. Sometimes we get in the way of what God's trying to do because we want it so bad, we think we have to do it. Let the Spirit of God do His work. But be praying for this mercy of God to be demonstrated. That heart, same heart that the whole time that he was being crucified, he kept saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's crying that out now, but the time is running short. But it's never, never too late. We'll close tonight with Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, I love that. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Folks, the Bible's very, very clear that in the last days, many who claim to be one of us are not going to be with us very, very much longer. As things get harder and harder, family's going to turn against family, mother against brother, father against son. They're going to go out from us, but they never were of us, First John chapter 2 says, because if they were, they would have stayed. This isn't a passage that warns, oh, oh, be careful, you better hang on to Jesus or you're going to lose your salvation. No, 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 don't forget what Jesus said. I came to do the will of what my Father has sent me, and this is my Father's will, that I will lose none that the Father has given me. This is a warning not to someone who's a Christian and you might lose your salvation. This is a warning to those who are playing the game, pretending to be Christian, a little bit on the Christ side, a little bit on the world side, kind of playing like a chameleon with whatever group you're with. There's a warning for those people. And the Bible says that as things get worse and worse in the end, the ones who are truly saved will become evident because they'll stick. But we're not sticking because we hang on. We're sticking because he holds on to us. Remember, Jesus has said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. Over the years, I've had debates with people about once saved, always saved, and I explain to them this simple doctrine. The Bible's very clear. If God has sealed you by His Spirit, and only you and He know that, if God has sealed you by His Spirit, you're eternally secure. But what about this, and what about that? And my trump verse that I always use, because I could show you 50 verses that show that your salvation is secure, but the one that I love to show is Jesus' own words Himself, where He says, I will lose none that the Father has given me. If you've been given to the Son by the Father, you're His. This warning is not for Christians. This warning is for those who aren't. But time is running short. And His mercy is always offered right to the very end. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.